Galambanian Gandanga Maranu. My name's David King. I'm a Gundangara traditional custodian. My mum was Auntie Mary King. She was born up here on Gadumba clan in a place that we call the gully, Katoomba, Gargaree. My granddad was Essie Cooper. He was a Baragarang man, a place that we call Warragamba. On behalf of my elders, past and present. Baringaling, past. Marinda, present. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the traditional custodians. In our language, Yadangni, thank you. Hello and welcome to the Blue Mountains Tourism Podcast. And what an exciting one we have for you today. My name is Ronnie Swintek, your host. Today we catch up with renowned author and former journalist Michael Duffy. Michael is best known for his crime novels, with his later series being based in the Blue Mountains. We chat to Michael about his books and how much of it is true and how much is fiction. There is a definite chill in the air, which means we are well on our way to winter in the mountains. And with that comes our Yule Fest celebration of Christmas in July. And nobody does it better than the original home of Yule Fest in the Blue Mountains, the Hotel Mountain Heritage. Today, we catch up with the manager, Roberts Egypts, to get the lowdown on what we can expect. Our first guest today on the podcast is Andrew Russell. Andrew is the resident beverage buyer at the Carrington Cellars in Delhi. If you don't know about the Carrington Cellars in Delhi, it is a liquor and gourmet provador housed in Katoomba's former power station behind the Carrington Hotel in Katoomba. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you very much. Now, I know it's probably you're not actually drinking, but what is your favourite drink at the moment? Um, Look, uh, alternate varietals are huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all the Italian varietals, uh, uh, a lot of the Central West wineries, Sangiovese, uh, Spanish, Tempranillo, Arnais, yeah. So people are getting uh, a little bit more adventurous in their uh, their taste. So Marlborough Sauvy Sauvy Blanc is sort of on the back burner now (laughs) as people try to explore um, sort of new tastes and sensations. That's awesome. It's kind of like gone the way of Chardonnay from the 80s. Sauvignon Blanc is sort of stepping back and making way for Sangiovese and things like that. uh, Chardonnay's coming back. People people remember Chardonnay and, and we get uh, people coming in and going, I remember having an old hunter oat Chardonnay, so I'd love to I'd love to try it again. So yeah, interesting. Mm. Now, um, what does a sommelier do and how did you get into that line of work? Let's start with that. How did you become a sommelier? Oh, look, um, drinking a lot always helps. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe I should join up this, uh, this occupation. Yeah, oh, there's a few potential clients out there as well, for sure. Um, Look, I think it's just the love of wine, mm-hmm. love of wine and food. Um, and uh, the more you learn about wine, the, the more you realise you don't know much. There's, I mean, there's just so much to learn. Mm-hmm. So many countries make wine, such huge amount of history in winemaking, way back to, way back to BCs, you yes. know, when the, the Georgians and the Greeks and the um, Phoenicians all used to make wine and amphoras. And, and um, I don't, don't know exactly how, how good it would have tasted, but uh, they, they drank wine anyway. So it's just a, a, you know, a passion for that sort of thing. And um, luckily I get to get to be paid for my passion as well. So, so describe the sommelier job. Oh, look, it's not so much a sommelier job. Um, sommeliers tend to be um, working in restaurants and they, um, and they, you know, create wine lists and then help 
patrons and uh, and people um, dining um, with with wine matches, wine and food matches. Oh. Um, I tend to, to to be the buyer of buyer of wine for the Carrington. So um, um, yeah, just lots of trade days down in Sydney, lots of tastings of wine. So when you come in to us, you know that we've tasted the wine and we like the wine, uh-huh. um, and we can recommend it confidently. You know, so many so many um, independent uh, bottle shops and um, venues have been taken over by big big companies and big chains yeah. um, and so you know the personal services has certainly um, gone on the wayside you, so, yeah. do you do tastings at the, at the look we, we are starting to again we uh-huh. unfortunately with COVID we had to knock everything on the head again yes. uh, so um, we're starting to you know uh, we, we're probably this winter we'll have every Saturday we can come in and, and taste some new wines so yeah we can talk people through it. And is it true like when you have you the first sip of the wine isn't the real taste it's the second one isn't it? Oh look you you it, it's more it's more when you're tasting wine uh, the nose gives you uh, the the first hints to start with, um, and then uh, and then as you drink a bottle, you find especially with 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 younger wines, it changes through the through the entire bottle yeah. as you go through it. As as yeah, as especially with reds, they open out um, quite a lot. Uh, whites when they warm up a little bit, you get um, different flavour components coming out of those those wines as well. Now it seems like there's been a bit of a renaissance of craft breweries, distillers, vintners. Um, they're all drink alchemists, and in the Blue Mountains in recent mm-hmm. years, this has been happening. Yeah, is it right? Is that right, or have people been making moonshine in the back shed a lot longer than we've thought? Oh, look, I, a lot of people have been making. Um, you know, I, I, you always knew someone who used to brew their own beer and um, and have it under the house, and every so often you go around for dinner, and then there'd be an explosion and, and <laughs> glass got, shattering. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but certainly people are getting a lot more serious about it now. Craft beer has just taken off completely. Um, and and gin is our number one spirit sal- sales at the moment. Um, so um, it, 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 you're right. Um, there has been a lot, of, um, a lot of interest in it lately. Now, it sounds like there's enough um, beverage stops to sort of make a drinks holiday in itself. Yeah. Lots of people are coming up. Um, Mountain Culture, um, which uh, which are just over the road in the old Civic Video Building, are uh, doing great things. They've just opened a second brewery down in uh, down in Emu Plains. Um, we've got the Katoomba Brewing Company, which is housed at the the Carrington Hotel. Um, Karu Gin down at Grossvale. We've got um, the Blue Mountains Gin Company, which is up here. Yep. And of course, we've got all the wineries down in Megalong. Um, so we've got Megalong Creek Dry Ridge. Yep. Uh, John Darrow makes his wines down there as well. So there's a there's a lot of of, uh, interest up here. Now, the Carrington has its own brewery. Yeah, it does. Um, tell me about that and where can I taste it? Oh, look, we um, started brewing uh, about seven or eight years ago and, and unfortunately then as had to close down with COVID, as yes. everyone did, and we've just started brewing again. So Karen's our brewer, a wonderful brewer from, from Sydney. Um, the beers are all on tap uh, in the Old City Bank Bar and Brasserie and also in the Carrington Hotel. So you can try all all our different brews there as well. And we sell we sell the pack beer, so the cans of the beer mm-hmm. in the in the Carrington Cellars and Deli. Oh, awesome. Now, where can we find the Carrington Cellars and Deli? I did mention it before. Yeah. And people have said that you just follow the smokestack. Yeah, is, follow is it the that chimney. Easy? It is indeed. If you can find find the chimney in Katoomba, which is the, the dominates the skyline. It sure does. That's us. We're we're right under. <laughs> Underneath it, so just off Park Street. Um, so as you're coming into the Katoomba, um, the roundabout, the first roundabout, you get to keep going straight ahead, and we're just over the over the crest of the of the of the road. Andrew from Carrington Cellars and Delhi, thank you so much for your time today. 
pleasure. Thank you. There is a Blue Mountains craft beverage trail and even tours so that you don't have to drive. We've put those details in the show notes. Australia's first Yule Fest story. A group of Irish travellers are relaxing by a roaring indoor fire in the Hotel Mountain Heritage Lounge one freezing July evening in 1980. The windows are frosted. Snowflakes are dancing on the wind outside. They let nostalgic thoughts of home creep in. To lift their spirits, hotel owner of the time, Gary Crockett, puts on a festive feast with all the trimmings. The Celtic guests dine on roast meats, veggies and plum pudding and sing carols around the fire. The gathering is so well received, it is held every weekend throughout midwinter. After a while, other venues take up the idea and 43 years later, the Blue Mountains is famous for being the first Yulefest destination with celebrations found in numerous hotels and restaurants. There might even be snow. Roberts Egypts is the general manager of Hotel Mountain Heritage in Katoomba and Falls Mountain Retreat. Originally known as the Californian Hotel, Mountain Heritage is one of the best-known grand hotels. It's also home of Yulefest. Welcome to the podcast, Roberts. Great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. You're very welcome. Now, the Blue Mountains is Australia's first Yulefest destination. But Hotel Mountain Heritage is where the first ever Yulefest celebration was held. How did that come about, Roberts? That was with our previous owners uh, who created and actually, well, created the destination and created the atmosphere. And then obviously everyone else was having a great time. The demand was there. And the rest of the Blue Mountains properties supported that and initiated their own Yule Fest uh, following the success of what was happening at the Hotel Mountain Heritage. Now, lots of people say Christmas in July. What's the difference between Christmas in July and Yule Fest? To me, the key difference is it's probably, it's a more happy, vibrant atmosphere. Uh, It's more of a celebration. It's more fun. It's even more festive than what Christmas is, and there's probably more entertainment. People probably let their hair down a little bit more because they're not just with direct relatives, but they're Uh with friends and those people that they really want to invite, whereas at Christmas, you're possibly (laughs) stuck with a unique uncle or a family member that you possibly haven't seen for a year or two. Yeah, okay. I'm glad you mentioned that because I really didn't want to bring that up. (laughs) Now, what can people expect of you first at the Hotel Mountain Heritage this year? I mean, will there be turkey, plum pudding? Can we see carols wear hideous jumpers? Tell me about it. Yeah, so this particular year uh, we offer your first across seven Saturdays, so the last Saturday in June up until and including the first Saturday in August. It includes six and a half hours of live entertainment. So we have a a pianoist from uh, 3pm through to 7pm. Then we have a choir of four uh, coming in to delight all guests with um, live Christmas carols for half an hour. Wow. Then we have a visit from Santa Claus, and then we have a fantastic soloist uh, to complement the end of the evening. It's also six courses of food. It also includes a complimentary glass of French champagne on arrival. Lovely. And exactly as you highlighted, the menu's all about the Christmas favourite. So Australian roast lamb, um, beautiful honey-glazed ha- and bourbon-glazed ham, I should say, oh. Christmas puddings, cheese platters, desserts, unlimited tea and coffee, uh, soft drink and juices. It sounds like one of these events that you 
you have to wear elastic pants. So you can stretch out because six courses. Six courses is a lot, but, um, you know, everyone likes to indulge in Christmas in July or over the true Christmas period. So we welcome that and we support that 100%. As long as everyone has a great time, we're very happy for them. Is there a dress code for no, your fest? As long as everyone's happy, comfortable and relaxed and ready to celebrate and have a great time, we support that 100%. And as you said, you can bring your own family or create a family. Absolutely. We should actually do an orphan's table. It's actually not a bad suggestion. But um, yeah, no, look, we welcome anyone and everyone. And uh, we're actually noticing a lot more demand from some of our international guests, guests who are booking overseas. Um, So now that obviously COVID restrictions stopped 18 months ago, we're getting a significant number of international guests coming and they're specifically booking and reserving for dinner as well as hotel accommodation. And for me, that's very exciting. And it's great for the Blue Mountains reputation as well that that is actually starting to occur now as well. So true. Now, obviously, we're going to book a Your First Getaway at Hotel Mountain Heritage because it's the original and, as I've just heard, you put on a fine celebration. But just say you're booked out, does that mean I miss out on Your First in the Blue Mountains? Not at all. Um, I'm very confident we won't book out because if the restaurant is fully booked, we will then uh, look at opening up at one of our tower rooms or one of our, our mini ballroom for and extend covers that way as well. If anyone wants a larger private gathering for Yule Fest, we're delighted to uh, look after that. We can put it on for additional days as well, but we're we're pretty confident we'll be able to accommodate everyone who wishes to participate this particular year. Okay, but are there other hotels and restaurants that participate in Yule Fest? There certainly are, and uh, it's great that the whole Blue Mountains gets involved and we sort of support each other and make this uh, a fantastic event and really to highlight and promote the Blue Mountains as a whole. Mm, That's awesome. Thank you so much for for your time, Roberts. Uh, we're going to pop links to the Hotel Mountain Heritage Yule Fest celebrations in the show notes, along with other Yule Fest activities. Thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Michael Duffy tells tall tales, but they're true or based on truth. Well, they have the essence of truth. In any case, his novels and online story portal showcase the rich culture and heritage of our Blue Mountains community. Locals might even recognise a few thinly disguised characters in Michael's best-selling Bella Graves series of crime novels. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming. Thanks. It's good to be here. Your book, Tall Stories, is different to the Bella Graves series. Tell us about it. Well, I've been living here for a while and visitors are always asking me, you know, what's the story? What's the background to different things you see like the Three Sisters or Govett Sleep? And mm-hmm. so I did a bit of reading over the years to find that out. And being a writer, I decided to write it down at some point because there are so many great stories here. It's extraordinary. We all know about the natural wonder of the area, but the human, the human element of the last, you know, 200 years is extraordinary. Can you give us an example? I think... I think my favourite example, I mean, there are so many out there, like, are the Blue Mountains really blue? Did Govett leap? But the central story's (laughs) got to be the Three Sisters, doesn't it? Yes. um, That's the most popular destination up here. Oh, absolutely. And, um, of course, the Aboriginal people today talk about the relationship of that rock formation with the Pleiades stars, which is as it should be. But for about 100 years, there's been this weird parallel Aboriginal story that we probably was not created by Aboriginal people, as far as we know. It was created by white people, mm-hmm. um, which goes to a, a tribe or a group that used to live there, and they were attacked by another tribe. And so a magician of the tribe under attack turned three maidens into 
into rocks, basically. Yes. The, the idea being he would turn them back when the, <laughs> um, when the fight was over, but sadly he died, so he never got that chance. God, don't you hate that? <laughs> when the magician dies. <laughs> and a bit of bad luck, so there they stand today. But as far as we know, the first trace I've been able to find of this was in a 1917 publication by the New South Wales Department of Education for Children. Really? Yes, and no one's been able to trace it back to an Aboriginal person, which has to make you wonder if... You know, every every place needs a sort of foundation story to bring it alive, doesn't it? Mm. Like the story of Govett Sleep, which, mm. which is not really true either. And I just wonder if maybe this was a creation, basically, because it keeps getting repeated and repeated to give a bit of meaning to those three rocks. It does, doesn't um, it? Constantly. Yeah, but as far as we know, it goes back to European, you know, tradition of people being turned into rocks, you know, in myth and legend, yeah. and we sort of brought it over here. Yeah. So that's a kind of weird story where the story about the story is interesting too. Yeah, fascinating. Now, you were a journalist for many years and you worked in crime for years and years. You translated that into your writing as well, didn't you? I did, yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, one of the reasons for that is that crime novels are probably the best-selling novels these days. It seems to be a story that people really want to read. And mm. I also love the idea of doing it locally because if you go to places like North America or Europe, there's actually a real tradition of series of novels set in particular parts of the landscape. And I love them because they build up a story of the landscape as you read book after book. You mm. know, Donna Leon, for example, has written about Venice. And I thought, you know, if she can do it about Venice, why can't I do it about Katoomba? <laughs> now, how long have you been writing about the Blue Mountains and its characters? I wrote a book called, or I edited a book called Crossing the Blue Mountains many years ago, which was a collection of stories, true stories of people who'd crossed. But really the Bella Greaves books, um, the last two years, I'd say, I've done two and I'm doing another one now. Wow. So let's cut to the chase, Michael. This is a question. Who is Bella Graves in real life? <laughs> well, all I can say is she's an amalgam of lots of Lots of um, journalists that I've worked with when I was with the Sydney Morning Herald. But what I wanted to do in her story was to tell the story of um, of the decay of journalism because, you know, journalism is basically dying because there's no advertising. Yes. And there's lots of older journalists who are now I mean, pretty well out of work. Yeah. And way. social media has taken over, yeah, unfortunately, right. and it's based, yeah. people think it's based on truth. Mm. And I mean, it's not just in journalism. There are lots of older people. So I wanted a, a heroine who is maybe a bit older than your average detective in crime mm -hmm. fiction and who is going through some of those issues that face older people. Because I thought, you know, I mean, a lot of readers go through that too. I thought that this is a great chance to explore that as well as the crime. You, you're a journalist by trade, as mentioned before. You must have come across so many stories, including many you can't tell or have to disguise. Tell me about the process of developing a character. Well, the, the important thing about a character in fiction is that it has to, I think most writers would agree with this, it has to have some relationship to someone or a group of people that you knew in real life. Um, people, Some people think that writers of fiction just you know, draw these things out of nowhere, but it's not the way it happens. There needs to be some sort of spark to bring it alive for the writer. Mm -hmm. Otherwise... Um, there's nothing real about it. So that's one of the reasons I'm not going to give you the names of the people I've actually based my characters <laughs> on because I don't want to get sued. I don't want you to get sued. Yeah. But, um, Thank you. Appreciate you, that. You do. You do. You build it up and there's just something about someone you might have met once. You might have only met them for half an hour or you might have known them for 10 years. And, you know, you just you pluck out that element and that becomes the beginning. But the fictional character you end up with is not really that person. It's, mm. it's a new person, but... 
there has to be some spark that is based in reality. Have you ever based a character on yourself slightly? Never. No, no, I wouldn't. I'd be far too boring, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I mean, obviously, you drag in all the things you know about life and your observations and even some of your experiences because, you know, that's what we really know and feel, isn't it? But yeah. um, the, the other character in the books is a, a detective called Paul Rule, and he was inspired um once again, just just the spark of it, not in no way his entire character, by a, um, a detective called Gary Jubilin, who actually I've got on the back of the book saying that it's not him, but um, <laughs> but it was Gary's, just certain aspects of Gary's life because he was a very high profile um, homicide detective. And I knew him. I actually wrote a nonfiction book about him. Mm-hmm. I just thought, wow, you know, this 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 guy is larger than life. I should write a fictional book about him. I, when you meet those larger-than-life people in real life, it's I can I can imagine that you'd be wanting to put them into it and fictionalise them. Absolutely, and as a journalist, that sometimes happens. You, you know, you might work for five or ten years, and suddenly you stumble upon um, a story or a case or a real person, and you think, you know, wow, this is the one. This is the one I really, I really would like to know more about and write about. The people that you've met in the Blue Mountains, have you put them into your Bella Grave series? No, no. I really I really try to avoid real people, especially um, the police or, or the local newspaper. I don't want anyone to suggest that I'm trying to represent them. They're entirely fictional creations. I tend to draw on people I've met in other parts of my life. Okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend that, for example, the mayor or the local member of parliament who's in my <laughs> book is anything like the real ones. Right. Not that I have anything bad to say about them, but... Um, I, I mean, I'm, for, for example, I wouldn't want people to think that they're going to run into themselves in my books. It's not like that at all. How long does it take you to write a book? What's the process? Probably, probably about a year. So I'm a morning person. So I get up and I write and I find it's really helpful um, just before I go to bed to think about, um, to brood on where the book's got to because your subconscious actually does quite a bit of the work for you. Often if you go to bed thinking about things, hmm. um, when you wake up, the solution might be in your mind, which is really helpful, of course. But you have to be obsessive to be a writer. I mean, it's, it's in many ways, it's very boring. You spend a lot of time by yourself. Yeah. You spend a lot of time thinking about the same thing again and again. I mean, I would do at least half a dozen drafts for everything. It would drive most people crazy. You know? that, that's the thing, isn't it? It's the rewriting and the rewriting. Do you ever sort of rewrite and rewrite and going, I'm making this duller. I'll have to go back to the previous ones and start again. Patrick White, um, who actually as a boy lived over in, in um, Mount Wilson and later went won the Nobel Prize, he was a novelist who said that novels that are not finished, they're just abandoned. <laughs> so yeah, you're quite right in a way. You get to the point where you think, okay, you know, it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. I'll go back a stage and we'll, we'll leave it at that. What are you working on now? Um, it's the third Bella Greaves book. Oh, yes, you did yeah, mention that. Called The Man in Black. So um, I'm actually off to a, a meeting with my editor this afternoon, so I'll find out if he thinks it's any good or not. <laughs> the Man in Black. Mm. Ooh, great title. Great title. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. We've put links to where people can buy copies of your books in the show notes, and we have a couple of books to give away today. To win one, just simply email communications at bmtourism.com.au and tell us in 25 words or less your favourite Blue Mountain story. And be sure to include your name, age and contact phone number. We'll put all these details in the show notes also. Thanks again for your time, Michael. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. 
You have been listening to Visit the Blue Mountains, a podcast produced by Blue Mountains Tourism. This episode was produced by Ellen Hill. Episode editor was David Post, recorded at KFM Media Studios. Music was composed by Rusty Pedal Music. The Welcome to Country was delivered by David King. And I'm Ronnie Swintek. And thanks for joining us. This podcast is made possible by $2.6 million from the Bushfire Local Economic Recovery Fund, co-funded by the Australian Government and New South Wales Government. With the Grant Blue Mountains Tourism as the leading tourism authority in the region, will administer and manage the Blue Mountains Visitor Economy Revitalisation Project, a two-year destination management program that will reinstate the Blue Mountains as a key tourist destination in New South Wales and Australia.